0: Uh, This morning we find ourselves sort of in the middle of our series. If if you're a a visitor this morning, or it's your first time, maybe your second time, we are in a series on the Apostles' Creed. This is uh, something that we've been reciting for a while. And so, um, today, uh, we're in the middle, roughly. Roughly somewhere in the middle. So how are we doing? The, The intention... When we started this series so many, many moons ago, um, we had a clear objective. You know, the Apostles' Creed has become part of our liturgy, our collective expression of of worship. And a significant danger in reciting something, even something good, is that um, it starts to become too familiar any Anything that we do often starts to become too familiar. It becomes an uh, old hat. It becomes rote. And so we, we, we don't want this to lose meaning. If you were to visit churches that have been following a specific liturgy for years or even generations, their challenge is often to Say, how do we breathe life into this? It's a good thing, but how do we make it live? And so our challenge is is to go through the creed, to go through the different statements that are made, and to make sure that we are filling these words up with meaning so that we say a phrase and there's a, a thought, a concept, an idea, a depth there that's recalled every time we go through We don't want these to become just, just words. The pillars of a faith, our, our doctrine is consistently and, and constantly challenged. Not just here, but throughout the world. It does include our, our country and state and county and city and neighborhood, but there are other brothers and sisters around the world today who this morning would echo These same words that we would state. We would state the Apostles' Creed together and together find fellowship in them. And and yet this morning, we have brothers and sisters who suffer because of it. And they cry out to the Lord for mercy and to strengthen them. To be girded up, that they wouldn't falter or shrink back, but that they would bear in their lives, in their bodies, the proof of this inward faith, but also the stated faith, uh, what we s- state so often every every Sunday. I pray that they would live it, even though it leads to pain, it leads to loneliness, it leads to suffering, and it leads to death for some. This morning, we look at this particular doctrine in the Apostles' Creed and this particular doctrine that we will look at. I have to challenge all of us, including myself. This cannot become a simple statement that loses its meaning. This has to be more. So this morning we're, we're going to discuss the, the suffering and the death of our Savior and the details around it. Even though this doctrine is stated often, we talk about the suffering death of our Lord often. And and here we do it every Sunday. Part of our, our practice is to proclaim his death in communion every Sunday. So this is a doctrine we talk about a lot, even beyond just the creed. So I pray that this morning we would add to our depth and to our commitment to this truth as we go through it this morning. Let's ask the Lord to bless us. Heavenly Father, God, we come before you as limited human beings. Lord, we are in desperate need of you of your your power in our lives, Lord, just to make it through a day, to make it through a day to glorify you, to honor you, Lord, we need you. So Lord, today as we look at this specific doctrine, Lord, I pray that though it may be a topic we have discussed many times, countless times, Lord, I pray that you would instill in us a new vigor, Lord, for this truth. Lord, I pray my words would fall to the ground and that yours would, Lord, enter hearts and minds, Lord. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, uh, we're going through the statement of the Creed. Uh, The section of the creed is obviously, as we've talked about last week, um, talking about Jesus Christ. As you can see up here, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. If you look at the statement here, it falls into four really nice little categories, little segments. Every good sermon has three points, so you get a bonus one today. There's four, all right? And so we're going to kind of look through there. And I just want you to remember these particular doctrines we're going to go through. There's volumes of books and resources, thoughts, sermons have been produced on, on these things for generations, centuries, millennia. And so we are definitely not going to be exhaustive this morning. These doctrines are also very familiar. So I, I hope and I pray that we would just add a little bit of depth and meaning to each one of these things and to encourage you, Lord willing, to continue to pursue an even deeper understanding of these things that so you might live in light of these doctrines. So we'll start, start the first one. Start at the number one here. Suffered under Pontius Pilate. You know, last week Brent focused on the virgin birth of, of our Lord and uh, God made flesh. And honestly, the depth of that doctrine is immense. I think Brent did a great job of navigating that and give us some good things to think about. Uh, again, something else that so many things have been written on. Uh, but this statement suffered, as you see right here, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Uh, the statement suffered is the initiation of the ramification of the incarnation. Write that one down. Uh, It's the initiation of the ramification of the incarnation. The idea and the concept of a suffering Lord felt new when Jesus brought it up. He brought it up in his teaching with his disciples many times. It's not a new concept though, This this is an old concept. The concept of the suffering servant is something well established before the coming of Jesus. We'll look at one key passage and see what we can see there. So turn with me to Isaiah 52. This is as I said just one spot but it is one of the more uh, read passages on this this topic here. Isaiah chapter 52. We're gonna go into uh, Isaiah 53 as well. We may skip around a little bit in here. So hang on tight. Let's look at this passage here. Starting at verse 13, chapter 52. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. This is the Lord giving a message to Isaiah. and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before them like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and is one from whom men hides their faces. We'll pause there for a second. This is the Lord talking about his servant. This is the Lord talking about the one who would come, who would suffer. This is explicitly the servant of the Lord prophesied and even at that time there were many who knew and understood this to be something connected with the Messiah, although they may not have understood all of the details. And I think as, going, as we go through the New Testament, you can see they obviously did not completely understand that. Look at verse four. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Verse six, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This, especially in light of knowing the story of Jesus, how could you not see this as being Jesus? There was someone who uh, worked in an office and the majority of the people who worked there were Jewish, many of them practicing. And he wanted to reach out to them. He really felt a burden for them, and so he actually printed this out, but he removed the passage in the verses. So he just had this thing, and he he handed it out to people and said, I want you to read this. They started reading through it, and you could see them kind of furrowing their brows as they read, and gave it back to him, and said, "I I don't want this stuff about Jesus. Why are you giving me this? I'm Jewish. He said, do you know where that's from? I said, probably somewhere in the New Testament. He said, that's Isaiah. Their eyes got real big. See, even to those who don't know the story of Jesus from the New Testament as we do, they may know enough to understand who that was. And these, these ones definitely did. That's it's definitely that, a passage that has been used for so many people for them to understand the suffering that Jesus bore. He was in fact, if we read this properly, this is from Isaiah. This is hundreds of years before Jesus arrived. He was destined to suffer. That was one of his roles on earth was to suffer. To take that upon himself. And he was not shy about telling his disciples that this was the case though it was probably easy for them to just think, I don't understand this metaphor. I don't understand how this is really going to apply. And they may have mystified it, spiritualized it. Yeah, Jesus was pretty clear. I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die. And in fact, sometimes he even said, I'm going to Jerusalem and I will suffer at the hands of <laughs> Of my enemy, right? He he would explicitly say it, and they said, Wow, Jesus is just so deep. I just don't know exactly what you mean by these things, right? And they just couldn't quite put all these little things together, couldn't piece them together. But he wasn't shy about it. In fact, there's a a couple of of passages that kind of really highlight this. There's an account given in in Mark and in Matthew, and and the details are slightly um, different between, but if you put them together, you get kind of a neat little. Full picture there. So the, the account is given in Mark 10, verses 35 to 45, and Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28. What is neat about uh, the, these, these verses here is they're in response to Jesus talking about suffering. In one of the passages, he actually explicitly talks about this act I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to do these things, right? The other one, he talks about his servants. Experiencing persecution and suffering. So if you put the two accounts together, it goes something like this. They were there, they are all meeting, they were talking, and James and John's mom comes up and says, Jesus, do you think that maybe in your kingdom my sons could sit at your left and right hand side? Jesus looks up and sees them back there, maybe kind of looking at him like, why'd you send your mom? (laughs) (laughs) So they both come up and say, Jesus, this is, I think, an important note. Their mother said in the kingdom, they come up and, you know, I don't know, this is part of my sanctified imagination, putting these two little bits together. They come up and Jesus is like, what do you really want to ask and they say, Jesus in the glory, can we sit at your right and left hand side? Because this, this event is post-transfiguration. This is after they saw the nature of Jesus revealed in its fullness on the Mount of Transfiguration, on Mount Hermon. They knew there was more than just some earthly kingdom. They didn't have all the pieces there, but they said, can we sit to your right and left hand side? Jesus basically tells them, you don't know what you're asking. I want to direct your attention to one of the verses here, though, Mark 10, verse 38. As he goes to talk about this, he says, are you able to drink from the same cup that I will drink. So they wanted to know can I, well, the brothers, can can we sit here right and left hand side in the glory? And he says, Are you able to drink of the same cup? Now what is he talking about? He is talking about suffering. Are you able to follow me in my suffering? And of course, what was their answer? Oh, sure, yes, we can do that. I, like, I added that little nuance to it. But it's like, yes, we can do that. But he's like, yes, of course, we'll do it. And sort of the same was when Peter says, oh, no, I'll die for you, Jesus. Of course I'll die. Yes, of course. Surely, surely we will suffer. Yeah, we'll suffer with you. And again, I don't th- I think they really understood what was meant The cup of suffering is what comes with discipleship. Jesus famously said also, if you want to follow me, you have to do what? Take up your cross? We'll come back to that in a minute. The path to glory is paved with suffering. Jesus is very upfront about this. In fact, sometimes people say, Jesus, I want to follow you. And he says, I don't know, it's pretty rough. Do you really want to do that? Do you really want to follow after me? Do you really want to do these things? Starts asking really tough questions, and I'm sure you can see the disciples in the back going, why are you doing that? Why are you saying all these things? Even in our ministries today, let's soften that a little bit. Let's get them in the doors first, you know? Don't want to scare them off immediately. Jesus seemed to be in the habit of scaring everyone off immediately whenever he's sharing this. What type of disciples do you want? The ones that know what's coming? The ones that are fooled later? So this is a bait and switch. John chapter 15, verse 20. Jesus says to his disciples, and these, these are among the teachings, the last ones he left with them before he went to go and suffer, and he says, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So he says to them. And he's referencing an earlier teaching that he had um, back in John 13. So even earlier in his teaching, he refers back to it. He says, you want to be my servant? No servant is greater than his master. So I will suffer and I will die. I will suffer horribly. And so you can't, you think yourself greater than me. That you all of a sudden just won't suffer? Jesus is, he, Jesus never minces words in regards to that. He lets them know the path of discipleship, if paved, Suffering. Now in this statement here, it says he suffered specifically under Pontius Pilate. Pilate, I was talking to Matt about this last week or the week before. Pontius Pilate's one of only a couple of individuals who were named in the Creed. Obviously, Jesus is named. Then you got Mary and you got Pontius Pilate specifically named here. It's very weird. Why, why Pilate? What's important about him? Why do we have this pagan leader referred to here? This morning we, uh, John read through John. It wasn't, a, you know, wasn't thinking about that, but John read through John. Uh, chapter 18, um, this, this, this interaction that Jesus has with Pilate is recorded in all the Gospels. Matthew 27, Mark 15, and Luke 23 are the corresponding passages here and so if you, you read all these together you get a, th- a few things to kind of point out here so we're not going to be exhausted this is such an interesting thing we could we could spend some time studying this it'd be pretty interesting but we'll kind of go quick, quickly through this idea why is Pilate mentioned well I think the first thing is this gives a, a definitive historical timestamp to this event this is an actual event that took place that's recorded you can go look it up it's essentially what's what's being stated here Right, this isn't fake, this isn't made up, it's Israel. Right, so it's a, an actual historical event with actual historical figures. One other thing, Pilate represents the nations. He represents a, a, a pagan empire. He represents the leadership structure of that. He, he's sort of in this story, in the greater sort of meta story that we have here, he represents the nations. if you compare the trials, so we didn't look at the trial that he had with the Sanhedrin, but you compare the trials. The trial that he had with the the Jewish leadership, they brought false witnesses, they brought false accusations. It was done at a illegal time of the day for a trial. Everything about it was false. And those are his people. He's brought to Pilate. And Pilate's saying, well, why don't you try him? What, what, what has he done? What, 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 haven't you already looked at this? And so we want him put to death. And only you can do that. Which is funny to say, because there are several times in the New Testament where they have no problem trying to kill him. And he escapes. The other count in John 8, where they're going to stone the, the adulterous woman. They seem to have no problem really killing people if they really feel like they need to. So what's the point? The point here is Pilate was the only one who gave the kind of death that they wanted to squash this new belief system. We need Jesus dying in public. lifted it up. We need him dead that way. And only Pilate could do that. Pilate seems to look for truth. It's mentioned here a couple of times. I want to find out what's really going on. And he seems kind of disturbed about being forced to put to death someone that he can't really determine whether they're really guilty of something. In fact, to the end, finally saying, I wash my hands of this thing. You can have the guilt on yourself. I don't find any fault in this man. Another point is Pilate correctly not only finds no fault in him, but actually gives him the proper judgment. So the sign that, that hung above the cross that gave the judgment says, King of the Jews. That was the proper assessment. He basically was killed for being who he was in the light of Romans. And and in the passage we looked at in John 18, he says, are you king of the Jews? Which would have been an affront to Herod, the established hierarchy there. And he says, my kingdom's not of this world. I'm sure Paul's like, oh, it's like one of those like spiritual things. Okay. I mean, even though he's pagan, he's not completely foreign to this idea of the ethereal, right? He's like, okay, so it's one of those. So you're not really gonna be fighting because Jesus says, you know, if it was really of this world, then my people, you know, my, my, my followers would fight. It's like, yeah, it's true. Actually, so it's probably not like any of the other insurrections that we've seen. I don't really seem to see any problems, so. Another thing to keep in mind was that Pilate was ordained. To sentence him to death. First, he attempts to just have him suffer, scourge him, whip him, beat him. Is this enough? We send him back. No. The Jews, the collective crowd, want him dead. It was Pilate's role to initiate what must take place. John 19 15. The Jewish crowd, the leadership, the Sanhedrin and those that they had gathered around him said to, um, to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. He's not our king, we have no king but Caesar. Which is very interesting. Because it mirrors what they stated with Saul. Yahweh, we don't want you to be our king, we want a king like all the other nations. Well, they all confessed to have that now. You want Caesar as a king? You can have Caesar as your king. They would bear the fruit of that in AD 70 when their Caesar king would come in and boot them out of their own land. That's the king you want, that's the king you can have, fine. So they rejected Jesus as their king, mirroring that early generation who wanted to install Saul as their king. Point two, we've got a lot of stuff to cover here. A lot of good stuff in this, here this morning. I say good stuff and then I say crucified, Jesus was crucified. Well, it is funny I say this is good. The day that we celebrate, or remember, I should say, the death of Jesus, we call Good Friday. It's still recognized, even though this is the day that Jesus suffered and died, that it is good why is it good why is crucifixion good what does the cross mean to you it'd actually be pretty interesting if we kind of went around and had people kind of share like, what do you think when you see the cross like what do you think for some of us who grew up in the church it's a it's kind of a it's like connected to to a lot of different feelings right we sing songs about the cross this is where we understand our hope this is where we understand our redemption coming from our, our salvation from sin coming from the cross. There's there's comfort there. It's almost a comforting kind of symbol. And I can ask, what what do you think the cross means to the world? For many of the people in the world today, I would say the cross kind of symbolizes power. Depending on what their experience is, looking at history, looking at some different things. The the cross might mean corrupted leadership, might mean bad example, might mean, well, it all depends on their experience, doesn't it? But at the very least, it might symbolize some sort of institution of power. The church is symbolized in that way, and it has been used that way. By many. It's been used by a lot of people who would not adhere to the things that we believe. It's been used as a symbol to conquer. And we can show many examples of that. The symbol of the cross being used for that. For many of us, we'd say this is actually a sweet symbol of grace, sacrifice for us. And if we walk back through history, the closer we get actually to the time of Jesus, to the time of the early church, the cross is more and more offensive. It's more and more grotesque. Um, probably, even though many of us have never seen a real hanging, it's like that. It's like seeing the gallows. It's like seeing a hangman's noose. It's kind of uh, offensive. Like, or at least for us, we'd say that's a really sad symbol. That's a, we don't like that. A, it's a weird, I don't, that doesn't hit right. It's how Paul, when he wrote his letters, the cross was an abhorrent, shameful, and offensive symbol. truly was. To make the cross an image of salvation or hope was actually unthinkable. It doesn't work. There's cognitive dissonance when you do that. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter one real quick. 1 Corinthians one, looking at verse 18. For the words, I'm sorry, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Verse 22, for Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom, but to preach Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God this symbol of the cross even at the time of Paul didn't make sense to use as a symbol for their their God because it was shameful only the most vile were crucified only those who attempted traitorous murder mayhem insurrection destruction something really bad only they were crucified crucifixion also forces people to a violent and extreme humility it's a people were crucified naked lifted up so humiliating shameful kind of death. It's a very tough pill to swallow that Jesus was crucified. But as we read in Corinthians, as Paul wrote, became our glory. When we understand what Jesus did, we understand it was not his shame on display, it was ours. It was not our guilt that he was bearing, it was ours. And so we gladly Give it to Jesus to bear on the cross. Third statement He died. Very simple. He died. The doctrine of the death of Jesus is that He actually, truly, and physically died. There's some today would say there's a oh he just fainted, oh he he wasn't really dead. If you if you really understand history, it's impossible. The Romans were professional executioners. This was the price of sin, death. Romans chapter five. If you look, chapter five, verse six. For while we were still weak, this is Paul talking about us. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us. that While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. When we think back on the cross, it is the place where that punishment was taken care of. That, that sentence that we should have received was given to him instead. This is always the cost of sin. Sin. Genesis chapter two, even in the very, very beginning, it's the warning given. Genesis chapter two is 15. Starting there, the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and to keep it, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree, the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you do eat of it you shall surely die. And while they didn't drop dead, they started to die. They fell from their position that they had before the Lord. And they were like dead men walking. Because that is the wages of sin. The fall, the willful disobedience of humans against the Father Creator was punishable by death. The effects of that choice had ripples through all generations of all humankind that followed our first father and mother. Jesus in his perfection did not deserve death by his actions and through his miraculous virgin birth he bore no inherited sin from his father because his father was in fact the father, was God. His willing sacrifice was effectual for his perfect substitution. Unlike every other sacrifice that happened before, every other predecessory animal sacrifice didn't do it, didn't accomplish what Jesus could in a final type of way. Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22. If the words aren't up there, go ahead and turn there with me. Look at verses 1 through 8. After these things, God tested Abraham, starting in verse 1. Um, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering, on one of the mountains in which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Pause there. We have no statement from Abraham here. Doesn't say anything, doesn't indicate anything. God says, hey Abraham, take your son to this specific place and sacrifice him. Not as much of a recorded hiccup do we get from Abraham. The truth is, at this time, it was actually quite common for gods to expect the sacrifice of children. Quite common. Now, I don't think that Abraham thought God would leave him dead. There's every indication to think that God Would keep his promise. And so there had to be something that was going to happen. But Abraham followed and did what he was told. Verse 4. On the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here, his like servants, his attendants, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go up or go over and worship and come again to you. Notice he says there, We'll come back, we'll come back. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and said, he laid on Isaac, his son, took his hand on the fire and the knife. And so they went up together, and Isaac said to his father, my father. He said, here I am, my son. I, and he said, behold, the fire and the wood. Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? We seem to be missing something here. Abraham said, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering, My son. Now, in Hebrew, it's a bit more explicit. It's easier to see that Abraham was kind of indicating right there that this sacrifice is going to be Isaac. Also, a lot of our flannel graph uh, stories show him as a child. Most likely, he's a full-grown man. A lot of the scholars think he may have been even up to the age of 40 at this time. So, He's not dumb. He knows what's going on. He's kind of figured out what's taking place. So Abraham takes the wood and puts it on Isaac's back and says, Come on. Which then makes the last part of this verse so haunting, where it says the two continued on together. They continued up there. Sometimes we rob Isaac of this willing sacrifice. He went up that hill knowing. It's probably me. And in fact, the angel had to, it indicates, they had to almost like violently stop him. No, don't do this. We've got the sacrifice over here. What God does is he takes the normal operation. See, normally we'd just go ahead and sacrifice the kid here and that would be it. God interrupts the normal and says, No, something different is going to happen. I'm providing a substitute. This is the beautiful picture that we see. This is what we see that took place on the cross. This is what's hidden away in that simple word that he died. This event was to show the blessed difference between all the other gods and Yahweh. He would provide the perfect substitution which we know is Jesus. The fourth point we look at here is that he was buried. Details, this is often assumed and just overlooked, but we're not gonna do that this morning. Jesus was put into the earth. Now the way that they buried was a little different than ours, there was a cave and they put put Jesus in there. So what would normally happen is you'd have the first burial, which is you put the body into the grave, into the ground and they would put the spices and things on the body to actually break it down faster so it actually decompose. think the exact opposite of mummification they wanted the, the the body to decompose as fast as possible so you're left with the bones they would then take the bones and put them in a box called an ossuary, and they would put it off to the side so you go into a family tomb if Jesus example he's buried in a rich man's tomb he goes in there and then It was empty when he went in because it was brand new, but normally on these shelves would be generations of people in their bones sitting there waiting. What are they waiting for? Well, they'd be waiting for the resurrection that was promised to them. Someday we'll experience that. That's their method of burial. So they put Jesus into the ground. There was never any thought in their mind that this body is going to be preserved. This body's gonna break down and it's going to be gone. That's the whole point. This harkens back to Genesis chapter two, verse seven, where God gathered the dust and breathed into the dust a living being, and that's where our first father came from. When Jesus is buried, he's the last Adam. He's put back into the ground, back to the earth. So Jesus fulfills the suffering and the death that was deserved by Adam and Eve and goes into the ground to go back to the earth. What happens there is Jesus Jesus then exhibits that he is more than simply human. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, which is a great chapter by the way. It's a very hopeful chapter. We're going to read the less than hopeful parts here. At least the first part. The second part's happy. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21. But in fact, Jesus has been raised from the dead. Oh, that's verse 20. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That's the happy part. Verse 20. And for as by man came death, by a man has come also resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This is the pattern that we see. in The first Adam, death, suffering. That's what's promised for us. But then the second Adam, life. And as we know, life eternal. Verse 42, same chapter. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. I'm sorry, so is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown as dishonor. Or in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first Adam, I'm sorry, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, the man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are all those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. Let's tie all that up together. It's like a seed. Jesus uses this example specifically. A seed goes into the ground, right? When it goes in the ground, the seed essentially dies. But what comes out of the death of that seed? A tree. Or a plant. Or something. Whatever is supposed to come out of that seed. Now if you're just to take that seed, see Jesus talks about a mustard seed. Okay? Look at the mustard seed. That mustard seed, you could not guess that a mustard, is it a tree, is it a bush? Is it like a big bush, like a tree, like a thing, mustard thing, mustard plant? Could you look at that little seed and say, oh yeah, yeah, that's gonna be a mustard big old plant coming out of that little seed? We couldn't, we don't know. There's no way that we could tell. But what Jesus says, it has to go in the ground, it has to die. The natural has to die, and then what comes out of that was the original intention. Intention. And what we have here is Jesus goes in the ground. When he comes out, he is a living spiritual body. So those who come after him, who would be us, his offspring in the spirit will be like him. The perishable human body of flesh had to be planted, had to be sown into the ground so the man of heaven could be revealed. Do you know what all these different parts have in common? Jesus deserved none of them. Not one of these things was for Jesus. Every single one of those things, suffering, the shame, death, none of those, the burial, none of those were for him. They were all for us. These these experiences should have been ours. They should have been delivered to us instead. The fact that we have a way of escape from the punitive effects of sin through Jesus Christ, honestly, I think this becomes so familiar to us, we forget it. This should be the subject of every love song, of every poem, of everything that we produce Should praise the Lord for this fact that we don't get what we deserve. We still suffer in this life, we still experience shame and death, and we do bury our loved ones today. But just like Jesus, they go into the ground, they suffer, we suffer to reveal what will come to reveal that we are the followers of Jesus, that we are the citizens of heaven, that we're the household of God. Our familiarity with these truths can sometimes yield apathy. We stop thinking about it. In fact, it becomes so familiar, we become okay with even some of the elements of mockery that come from the world. It's funny. It's not funny. If there's any aspect of our faith we need to take seriously, it's this one. This is our salvation. It is the beginning of our salvation. Jesus, in our place, took the punitive death for us, what we deserved. Concentrating on the works of Jesus, his beautiful bearing of our shame and punishment. To make way for our life, our eternal life in him. We, he can't be anything less than an epic hero. Worthy of songs sung till the end of time and even beyond that. And, and yet sometimes in our day we completely forget to even acknowledge that it happened. And small things become big things. And our worship of our Savior becomes lost in the cacophony of things that go on, in the ugly den of life, we forget that we have salvation. If we experience suffering, sometimes we forget that that suffering is nothing compared to Jesus and that all it does is reveal our true natures. Refuge, we have to remember not just when we read the creed, recite it, we, we should, there's a good time to do it. Always, every day, in every way, we need to remember his glorious deeds. Thank you for spending some extra time with me this morning to look at this. Father, God, we, in light of your great works, God, we cannot but humble ourselves before you Spiritually, we fall to our knees, Lord. Physically, Lord, we, we, we should be on our knees, Lord, thanking you, praising you. Next week, we will talk about the resurrection, the, the life that comes from this. But, Lord, this, this week, Lord, I pray that we would remember, we would wrestle with the fact that we are those who deserved the pain, the suffering that you bore, Lord, for our rebellion, for our sin, both volitional and involuntary. Lord, we deserve Lord, the suffering you endured, the death you deserved or the death that you took upon yourself, God. Lord, I pray that we would remember. We would remember that we are your servants and cannot be greater than you. Lord, may we in our hearts humble our minds, Lord, that we might become better servants, greater servants of our master, that we might speak these words with conviction, that we'd remind each other, Lord, that we would encourage each other in the momentary suffering that we experience now. And that we'd remember that we don't have a high priest who can't relate to us in our suffering, but instead, you bore it all. Lord, thank you. I pray you would make us even more grateful servants that we might accomplish your deeds on this earth. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, amen.